Welcome to the very first episode of Office Hours, a podcast about campus organizing in the end times. We're your hosts, Laura Martin and David Spataro. Today, we're going to look at an organizing campaign by students and faculty at Salem State University to expose campus debt and resist austerity measures being imposed by the school administration. We'll be interviewing two faculty members, Joanna Gonsalves and Rich Levy, who've been heavily involved with the Campus Debt Reveal Project. But before we go to our interview, since this is our first episode, we want to introduce ourselves and talk a little bit about what we're hoping to do with this podcast. We thought it would be fun if we each interviewed each other to start out. Let's start with you, David. I'll put you on the hot seat. Uh, So why don't you tell me, first of all, we have called this podcast Office Hours, a podcast about campus organizing in the end times. What does end times mean to you, David? And why is that in there? I think end, end times to me just references the fact that like uh, the enemies of uh, liberation education have success <laughs> have been quite successful in just turning our public colleges and universities and our community colleges into more business oriented, more corporate structured, more top down, more hierarchical, more employment focused institutions and while we we are like i don't try to overly be nostalgic about something before this because there's there's obviously a lot to say about what was before it but but there's just been a lot of success in turning higher ed into something that is you know partially privatized funded by tuition um poor labor uh, and working conditions for staff and faculty, overworked students um, and so forth. And then a shift towards like business degrees over um, liberal arts education. And and just it feels then like there's we're under attack. Was that end was that end times enough for you? Yeah. What do you want this podcast to be? What are your hopes for for our project here? I think like I want to just get out of the headspace where everything in the media having to do with higher ed has to do with like cancel culture, trigger warnings or um, cultural Marxism. So I was just like, I do sort of soak up and read or just consume a lot of media, uh, political like content. And what I see out there is just things that don't have to do with my workplace and my students and so forth. And this, this criticism I think has been leveled at like, um, you know, the focus is always on elite institutions. We're talking about Harvard or we're talking about students in um, elite liberal arts colleges and so forth. I just, I, I want to see a, a discourse or just like media out there that has to do with what's happening on our campuses and meaning the bulk of of those who are employed or going to school, which would be community colleges, public four-year colleges, and so forth. Should we turn the tables? Yeah, let's turn the tables. I just want to get a sense of like, how are you feeling right now about the state of higher ed? Well, especially after our last couple of interviews, which we've recorded, although we haven't released. um, Not great. Not great, David. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I feel mad and sad and bad because I feel that it is such a shame that there's so much collective human creativity and energy being put into education or, you know, that can be put into it. 
that is being wasted, human potential, you know, that is just being wasted. I feel like, you know, bread and roses, everybody deserves to have material resources, but also to have all the beauty of, you know, the life of the mind and and art and thought. And I really hate how that is, you know, impossible in this day and age. And in fact, I'm constantly being told by administration that any, you know, course of study that's not directly, you know, translates into a career that can't be like monetized is um, basically elite and exclusionary and goes against, you know, principles of equity and diversity. And we can actually use higher ed to learn about what's going on in so many other spheres. Like, why are there cops all over our campuses? Why why are we being policed? Why is everything militarized? You know, why why are sexual assaults like rampant on campuses? You know, like they're just they're a, a lens into um, the state of social life. That's us. That's us, folks. So if that sounds like your mix of apocalypse and, um, I don't know, uh, with a little zany humor and some love of, you know, human community thrown in, then we hope you'll keep tuning in. Yes. Welcome to Office Hours. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, can you introduce yourselves and tell us about the Campus Debt Reveal Project, including giving us a little bit of background on what led you to start organizing on your campus? And let's start with Joanna. Sure. Hi. Thank you. Uh, my name is Joanna Gonzalez. I'm a professor at Salem State University, and I'm the uh, statewide vice president of my uh, faculty union. And um, I'll let Rich introduce himself. I'm Rich Levy. I'm a professor emeritus of political science and working on this project. We got started during COVID when we were confronted with um, the administration saying we had a massive structural deficit of up to 30% of cut. They wanted to cut up to... 30% of the budget, five-week uh, furloughs for all staff on campus, all faculty librarians. And they came up with this whole explanation of why it was necessary. And so a number of us formed a cap. Well, we started looking into it and we discovered that actually the biggest factor in our deficit was debt service for campus capital debt. That was a full 10% of our budget. Um, and their 30% cut was their scare tactic. Um, but we started looking into that and started to try and do that analytically. And we formed a capital assets group, which was five or six people, one student, five faculty, none in business or economics. And we just started um, looking at the budget, looking at capital debt and what it meant. And I'll do one last anecdote and then turn it over to Joanna. As we were going along and discovering stuff, it was all sort of surprising 
you know, it was in front of us, but we never knew to look. Um, and so it was sort of this invisible debt. And at one of our meetings, uh, I said, do you know that the average student is paying $2,960 per year just for capital debt? Wow. They looked at me like I was crazy. Mm. Somebody said, you know, your math is good, but are you sure about that? Maybe you should check that. And I said, my math is pretty good, but my reading is even better. And I didn't calculate this. I read this off of their charts. They're proud of it. Wow. Yeah. So previously, you know, we would blame our financial problems on things like, oh, there's too much administrative bloat. And we really need to stop, you know, buying so much paper from Staples. Let's go green. You know, these are just such small, tiny pieces of the budget. And um, but but more importantly, the problem with all the borrowing we were doing for campus buildings, for dormitories and whatnot was um, not just that we had to make annual debt service payments and the revenue for that was coming from student fees, but we started to learn how much this borrowing paradigm was controlling the actions of the board of trustees. It went beyond just the annual debt payments. They were also worried about making sure that, you know, we had a good uh, credit rating for the next time we go out to bond. And so that meant, you know, having some reserves. Uh, that meant that we needed to uh, have a lean operation in case of bad times, we would still be able to make that debt payment. And it became clear to us that um, they were so focused on the next project that had to be borrowed for, they were unwilling to use. We had about $25, $30 million in reserve that could have easily covered the structural deficit Richard was talking about. Um, but they were unwilling to touch the reserves because they said, we need that when we go out to bond for the next project. So, so much of their decision-making wasn't about what we needed for our educational programs, what we needed for our students, what were, how do we serve our students during pandemic. They were seriously concerned about how the whole debt paradigm was going to fall apart because they might not be able to make the payments. And, uh, and this mentality is continuing even to this day. And, and two other links, if I can add in. One was, and they're, they're linked, they have a vision of right-sizing or downsizing the university. That is in many ways their goal. Um, and, you know, so they perceive deficits wherever possible to justify this. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they do something incredibly stupid that mobilizes vast numbers of people. Uh, they, for the first time in Salem State history, refuse to approve tenure and promotions. Saying mm, wow. expensive. That's and we did a drastic. calculation and they said they didn't have the budget deficit because of all the you know problems with COVID. So they weren't going to approve this. And we did a calculation that the tenure and promotions cost three-tenths of 1% of the budget. 
and no calculation that they got was going to be that accurate. Hmm. But what that did was mobilize people because people were freaked out. And what that put in perspective is they're willing to do this to faculty and librarians, to put students' education at risk, but they're not willing to address the $17 million a year in capital debt. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that helped to bring that to the fore. So um, for us, it was really an, an organizing movement moment on our campus. We recognize that as workers, um, we needed to start attending these fin finance committee meetings. We needed to do the research. We needed to communicate um, what we understood the structural deficits to be and offer solutions. In fact, um, we spoke at one of the Board of Trustees meeting in I think it was April of 2020, and we suggested maybe the solution was we don't actually pay the debt service. We mm -hmm. ask our uh, building authority to delay the payments because there's a pandemic. And we offered that as a solution. And sure enough, um, maybe not because we suggested it because other people were saying, we really can't be making these payments. They, we did get a year and a half of delayed payments. Mm -hmm. There was a refinancing. In fact, um, in the end, uh, people are making money off of the refinancing that took place <laughs> during, during the pandemic. So, you know, there was plenty of money to be made on Wall Street. But it really was an organizing um, moment. And uh, we wondered whether it was just Salem State. And we really had no sense of it until we got contacted by Eleni Shermer, uh, who is a, a reporter, uh, an activist, and was writing a piece for the uh, nation and um, let us know that this was a national problem. And, uh, and also, Reg, through your connections with the Debt Collective, we were able to join up and recognize that we were in this together as debtors and that in order to change things, it wasn't to change just our campus, but we need to change sort of the, the structures that exist in higher ed financing across the nation. Well, that, that's fascinating. And, you know, you, you, you mentioned that, you know, you started to realize this was a national issue. And I just want to say for myself, and I think people that I've mentioned this to, you know, people are surprised really about, you know, the, this issue of, of campus debt and institutional debt, which, I mean, when I think about it, I shouldn't be because it, it kind of makes sense just given the, the logic of higher ed in the last few decades. But, you know, I do think that, that while, individual student loan debt has become a pretty popular, you know, widely known topic and with Biden's sort of, you know, very small um, canceling of debt, you know, whatever that success people that's sort of in people's minds, but this institutional um, college debt isn't really widely known. So I guess, you know, you started to address this already, but I'm wondering, you know, what do you want people to know about campus debt and how it's impacting uh, higher ed? Um, well, basically, what we've been trying to do is we developed early on a worksheet that a university for each for a university and said pretty honestly for a relatively small 
public university or medium size like Salem State, you could go through it and fill it out in two to four hours, you know, with a combined maybe five or six, whatever. But it wasn't like a two week undertaking. And what that did was you'd fill in stuff like the overall revenue, the debt service, and it would calculate what percent of the budget goes to debt service, what percent of all student payments, including tuition fees, dorm fees, um, you know, other auxiliary fees like um, meal plans, parking, what percentage of total student expenses go to debt service? Um, what, how much additional debt would a student end up with if they were lucky enough to graduate in four years as a result of paying that debt service? And then we also included on there a thing we called instructional harm. How many faculty positions could be sustained, either not laid off or hired, were this used for full-time tenure-track faculty? How many extra sections by unfortunately exploited adjuncts could be saved, et cetera. So we made these costs very apparent. And then working through the Public Higher Education Workers Network and our own group, which we lovingly called the Debt Crew, <laughs> um, we organized four or five workshops online um, to try and explain to people that this is really critical and it's really easy to do this analysis on your own. And we wanted to pull together you know, a number of colleges, we got around 30 of them doing it on tax day 2021. Yeah, and um, that, was, that was great. There was a lot of interest in the debt reveal that we had on you know, uh, tax day in 2021. But we also thought about what's the next move is um, it needed, the, this kind of revealing needs to be systematic. And also there needs to be a purpose for doing it. Like, so what? You've discovered there's a problem. What are the solutions? And we had many conversations about different types of uh, solutions. You know, does it come from the federal government giving kind of like canceling debt bailout for public campuses, for instance, or is it that the states need to pay more for the the dorms and the academic buildings and just stop the the borrowing? Um, but we recognize that there probably isn't a one size fits all, and that really um, workers and students in their own state and then on their own campus need to think about how they can use this information to build some power, right? To, to, to agitate the community um, and to, you know, to have a purpose for, for sharing the information. In Massachusetts, uh, we engaged, we're engaging in a pilot right now, working, um, we have worked with all of the public campuses in uh, Massachusetts to systematically, you know, reveal the debt. We've been communicating it, such as the recent report that um, we released in September of 2022. Uh, but we have a purpose. We're trying very hard to, to use the reveal to push for more public higher educa 
um, more funding for public higher education. And that's through a number of mechanisms. One is certainly we're pushing to have uh, more student debt cancellation than just the 10,000. Because as Richard mentioned earlier, about a third of student debt is for the payments for auxiliary services. And if you're taking out, you know, 30, 40,000, that's like, it. Biden just canceled the debt service payments. <laughs> he hasn't actually uh, canceled the cost of, you know, and, you know, the instruction and all that. But uh, we also are got our, you know, we got behind the um, a campaign by the Massachusetts Teachers Association to push for a millionaire's tax. Now that was something that was, you know, getting on the ballot because of the MTA, the Massachusetts Teachers Association. But this became one of the planks about why things are different now than when other residents of the state went to the public school, say, 20, 30 years ago. It, it, it allowed us to tell the story of how the generations, mm. you know, um, are being, you know, there's disparities yeah. in the cost and why it's more expensive for today's young adults to go to college, for today's working adults to be able to attend school. Uh, and uh, we're also pushing for debt-free college. It's a bill in Massachusetts as well. And so for, for, other, for other campuses and other states, we believe that this is an organizing tool, right? And you need to, under, you need to sort, of, sort of plan, what are you gonna be pushing for when you're revealing it to the public and revealing it to your, say, elected officials? And one of the greatest insights I've learned from doing this is that debt is not merely an economic relationship, it's a power relationship. Mm. It's a relationship of who controls your time, your options, your life choices. And that's really understandable. Mm. You know, students are working, as you know, two and three jobs, right? Why are they doing that? Because they've got this debt, blah, 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 blah. Um, and they don't necessarily see it in the phrase that somebody else controls their time until it clicks. But once it clicks, it's in there forever. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, another thing that we did is um, it was really important, I think, for us as we made progress to have this combination of the public higher education workers, the debt crew, and the local organizing, because they all fed each other. We probably wouldn't have gotten as started effectively had we not been part of those national groups. But the experience that we all did and then shared allowed that to go across, you know, to different states. And it helped us move forward a whole lot. I mean, we did things not exclusively debt-based, but when the administration at Salem State did its downsizing or right-sizing, they never say downsizing, plan, they put out a vision plan. Um, you know, I don't know if where that came from, but we created an alternative plan, you know, and we worked with members on campus and it was a serious 15 page plan, not solely about campus debt, but that was a critical concept within it. And we linked that to austerity and we got 70% of the tenured faculty 
because we didn't want to put the other folks at risk, we got 70% of them to sign an anti-austerity petition you know, directed to the president and the board who promptly ignored it. <laughs> um, Classic. But that was, you know, we felt a good organizing opportunity and a, a place, you know, where we could be effective. That also, I mean, we did use something from Jane McAlevey about don't publish any names until you have a certain threshold so the first signers are not exposed to danger. Um, but also, you know, we learned other things. We created an alternative um, mail server because our union had no way for people to communicate with each other. Mm. So we just created one. It's now called the water cooler. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's for horizontal communication. Mm-hmm. And okay. sometimes it's really active and sometimes it isn't. You know, and our union leadership is not always supportive, but this was so persuasive that after about a year, our union president was centering debt as one of the issues when she was talking to the administration and to the union members. I'd like to mention that, you know, in in this work, we've made it a real point to include students in everything we do. Mm, That's something I was curious. Yeah, this has connected us to not only our own challenges that sort of campus austerity has created for us, but really to um, lean in and try to understand what the student experience around debt is. And hearing from students, um, Rich mentioned a few things like working too many jobs and, you know, not your time is not your own. And realizing that, um, you know, our students are, you know, paying so much, right, Um, not only for their education, but for this, this capital debt. And uh, then eventually when they graduate, or even if they don't graduate, they're going to have to pay back those loans. And so we like to say, or we often say, uh, is that sort of in the industry, Wall Street's going to get paid twice on those loans. They're Mm going to make interest off of the universities themselves, right, for the 20-year bonds. And then they're going to get another 10 to 20 years worth of interest off of the portion of the student loans that were taken out because the students didn't have the money to pay those uh, capital improvement fees. And so it's helped us understand um, a little bit better what our students are going through. And uh, we will compare that to our own experiences as faculty and staff, how sure it was hard, but my goodness, it's not really as hard today. And we no longer blame our students for not being able to show up at time or not having the time to do another edit on a research paper. They don't have it. We become a little bit more forgiving as we understand that the system is really not allowing them the time they need to be students. And certainly don't, they do not have the opportunity to take care of, you know, um, go, just go to a guest talk that's on mm-hmm. campus today. You know, Friday night, there's going to be uh, open mic poetry. Our students can't participate in those things very much any longer. Mm-hmm. And uh, having students as part of our campaign um, has humanized the problem. 
it's easy for people to dismiss angry professors who probably make too much money and I got little air quotes. Definitely um, don't make too much money. <laughs> we're always complaining about something, but it's harder to ignore the real right. heartfelt stories of our students. And in spaces like at the debt reveal and for uh, 2022 with our students, our the state reps who were there heard them and, uh, and, and they're connected. You know, they're now connecting student debt to this issue. Uh, and, I'll, and I'm going to turn it over to Rich, but my own, my own rep, Michelle Circulo, heard the student's testimony. And I later saw her uh, about two months afterwards, and she was talking about how we need to stop borrowing on campuses for buildings, and we need to have the state take over that responsibility again. And I thought, oh, it's really, it is the student voices that are penetrating sort of the hearts and minds of, of the people um, that we need to, you know, rally around for more state support. In reading through the like materials around the campus debt reveal project, it, it seemed very clear that those relationships with students are very strong. And so one of the things we were wondering is just like, you're, you all have been using uh, organizing, uh, you've been using collective research as an organizing tool and, you know, looking into spreadsheets and financial information, how have you been able to kind of generate enthusiasm and energy and relationship building doing what is commonly thought of as sort of just like, you know, grunt work and uh, work that people for the most part want to avoid because it's not fun. Um, so <laughs> how, how did you accomplish those things uh, in doing this uh, sort of collective research? I think the best example of that is the debt reveal report that we just came out with because we had 10 team leaders who were students and two student coordinators. And, you know, we wrote up a nice recruitment thing about not just what you were supposed to do, but an introduction to why um, this was important and a very simple thing about what campus debt is. And we conducted interviews with them. And um, honestly, about 20% of them didn't show up for the interviews for the same reasons, um, or they just figured out they could do another thing. Um, but a number of them said, well, I never heard of that. That's really interesting. Um, yeah, I'd like to find out. And they were involved to different levels, but you know, pretty well involved, the two women who were the coordinators both started out as i never knew about this this is really transformative you know and um one of them tyler has just been you know cited in a number of interviews she's been in the paper pictures in the paper and all this stuff you know gayathri has um appeared in some other stuff but it's been really transformative for them even though it starts out looking boring. And the other thing that was really important, we thought, that showed the potential power of the students is as this furlough fight and austerity and debt fight was going on, we were talking to a number of students and a few of them said, we're gonna launch an online petition. Um, that austerity based in large part on the debt hurts our education you're talking about taking five weeks of our education away 
and not even paying, you know, reducing our tuition, but we're supposed to be learning stuff, right? And when they wrote that petition, I don't remember it was three or 4,000 students, but out of a 5,000 full-time student body, that got so much attention that the president showed up at the SGA, the Student Government Association. And the uh, board all of a sudden said, we're gonna listen to students. And one of the summaries of that that came out was, it's not that the board and president respect students, is that they disrespect them less than they disrespect faculty. But what the president did was show up at the SGA and say, basically, if you don't back off and we don't get our five weeks of furloughs, we're going to raise your tuition and fees massively. That's not the way the process happens. Can't do it. But who knows, when you're threatened with a 10-15% increase, you can get nervous. They didn't back down, um, but it was a real useful lesson. We didn't have anything to do with that petition. It grew out of this on its own. Rich, I'd like to add also, yes. I think we learned early on in working with students at Salem State, then again, um, on campuses across Massachusetts that, you know, we're talking about building relationships. So in addition to us working on the issues around capital debt, we made it a point of finding out what other issues do you care about? You know, what are your concerns? Um, on at Salem State at the time, there was a hate speaker coming every Tuesday saying horrible things. Uh, and so we were able to talk with, you know, some of the student organizers that were connected with us, like, how do we support you? You know, we don't want to take over, but, but we, we, we hear you. We want to fight with you and for you. Tell us what to do. And I think that's really important in organizing. I think it's too easy. You know, there's a, we talk about power relationships, faculty and staff have power over students. And we need to sort of lay, you know, um, level that playing field so that we are able to approach them as, you know, collaborators. And so it was really important for us, for instance, to give our coordinators the same amount of authorship and opportunities to speak and to publish and to have interviews. I think it's, it's really important that, you know, we do better than our administrations. And um, we see this as an important opportunity to frankly develop future unionists and activists as well. Just a, a comment. I, I was really um, struck by what you were saying, Joanna, about uh, building relationships with students and something that, and, and you were talking about kind of learning more about your students' lives and developing more empathy. And something that I noticed so much as a, as a teacher is the way that it's really easy to start to kind of feel resentful of your students or annoyed by them or you know, particularly in the, the pandemic era of online teaching to be um, frustrated with their lack of engagement. And um, it seems like something like this can be a powerful way to remind each other that I, I, I think that, yeah, our, our education system can, can pits faculty and students against each other um, when really we're both um, kind of bearing the brunt of, of, 
um, the, uh, the just the ways that the education system is being structured to kind of harm us and make us, you know, um, not teach and learn in, in ways that are really um, liberatory or, you know, how we would want to. And so I, I think that that building solidarity between faculty and students just seems so valuable. Um, you you talked a little bit and I had read in one of the places where I was reading up on your campaign about that there had been previous organizing um, with faculty and students around different campaigns. You, you mentioned hate speakers and just discrimination on campus and queer uh, student organizing. I was just kind of curious, you know, how you how you came to work with students and how that fueled the debt organizing uh, just a little bit more because um, I think we need more of that and I think it doesn't happen that often. You know, I wonder, Rich, if you might want to talk a little bit about how we joined forces on the We Belong Here campaign. Sure. Um, early on, um, when we were talking to students, we did a set of interviews, surveys. We asked students you know, how they felt about campus, what they thought about Salem State. And one of the most frequent responses, which we have a lot of signs that people wrote it down, Salem State only cares about my wallet. It doesn't care about me. I don't feel like I belong here. And that was much more emphasized in students of color, GBLTQIA students, and faculty as well, and particularly faculty of color. Salem State has lost a very high proportion of its faculty of color in the past you know, two years. And so we decided collectively to create something called We Belong Here, um, a campaign to if not be able to make it an open, a welcoming space to at least demand that it be a welcoming space for people, for a diverse range of people. Because we think it's, we can't prove causality, but we can demonstrate correlation that as the population at campuses has become less white, the funding has decreased. Um, and so, you know, there's a diversity angle to it. There's an anti-racism angle to it. And it's important to, to deal with all those different elements, both because it's real and because it builds credibility in an alliance. So we were able to get a group called We Belong Here, including students and faculty that operated, we were operating fairly well just before COVID. As a matter of fact, we were able to, there's a big wall, um, it's about 30 feet long, about 10 feet high. And um, that separates the upper and lower campus. And we demanded that we be able to repaint that as we belong here. And we got funding from it, from for it, from MTA. And two and a half years later, it's still up there. Um, you know, not everybody knows what it means now, but that was, you know, a noticeable accomplishment. Not the vision, not the wall painting, but the fact that it was participatory, you know, that people felt part of it. And the other thing it did again with the how much 
the faculty and the board respect too. When we tried as faculty to get to meet with the president's executive council, it was poo poo. When we tried as we belong here, it was, oh, please, when can you come? Mm -hmm. You know, how many of you are coming? You know, and we'd be part of it. We didn't dominate it. We made sure that students were primary speakers, but that alliance was really, really pretty powerful. It has dissipated since COVID. Um, the one other thing I'll mention and then stop talking is in Massachusetts, there's also a group called Phenom, the Public Higher Education Network of Massachusetts, which is a largely student group that advocates for you know, better public higher education, including more funding, you know, greener buildings, more safety, blah, blah, blah. And they were able to have a paid campus organizer on a number of campuses across the Commonwealth. We were able through our local to get not one, but three organizers paid. And that really helped because three is a, is a caucus. One is a really hardworking, isolated person. And having that there and having that link to a statewide group, again, in large part funded by the Mass Teachers Association, not exclusively, you know, really help build out those relationships. That's still going. We meet weekly with the Phenom people. Um, they're now working on a campaign for a fair share amendment, which is that millionaire's tax. So, you know, that goes up and down a little, but it's also, as Joanna said, attracted people who, when they leave, are still activists. Yeah, I mean, I hear so many like important things for our moment in that story. And it just because it got me thinking about kind of the, the shallow discourse out there that's like uh, pits identity politics against class politics. And that like here you're describing a campaign around, you know, an inclusive campus, issues of diversity and issues of creating a welcoming environment and then tying them to structural adjustment and neoliberalization and um, putting those two together analytically, but also just the, the underlying relationships were built and the trust was built through, through the collaborations. And so that sounds to me like a, an important example for our moment as well. Um, I wanna stay with the organizing um, to go through some of our questions. The next question I wanted to ask is, how, how would you describe the institution's response? You've, you've basically, you've said a couple of things. You've mentioned the president um, responding to a powerful student petition. You've mentioned just disrespect overall. What I hear from you all is description of pretty powerful organizing coalitions being built. And so I was just want to hear sort of a more, you know, what has been the response from those who are on the other side, I guess. Uh, I'll tell a little bit about what happened after our uh, Massachusetts debt reveal day mm -hmm. uh, in April. Uh, on several campuses, the chief financial officers, either before or after the event, when they caught wind of it, you know, would bring in the campus teams and say, you got it wrong. And, you know, you don't understand what you're talking about. This, you know, barring is important for campuses. This allows us 
to, you know, improve, you know, can, campus facilities. And if we didn't borrow, we couldn't have all of these shiny things. Uh, and, uh, and so a number of our students were faced with the CFOs who were trying to basically intimidate them. And uh, they knew their numbers, that the numbers were good. And in fact, at Salem State, uh, the CFO, you know, said, you got it wrong. You need to meet with uh, my assistant CFO, whatever his name is, and um, go over the numbers just to, you know, if you're going to put numbers out there, they've got to be accurate. And so we went, I went with, I went with a student, we went into a, a team meeting with a bunch of accountants and they pointed out some of the debt we had left off because we didn't, we weren't aware of this other borrowing mechanism they had. And uh, so, you know, they painted an even worse picture, uh, you know. Uh, ultimately, what we learned is that our campus presidents are afraid to have the power to borrow taken away from them. Mm -hmm. They don't feel like they have the ability to bring the money into their campus from the state. The only options they personally control is they can go out and pound the pavement and fundraise and they can go out and borrow and they can make sure their institution, you know, meets Moody's and, you know, other credit or credit agencies criteria. And they desperately don't want to have those two things taken away from them. Right. Um, because then they cannot in their short tenure as president really affect change. Right. If you go, if we're talking about a new paradigm for financing higher education, that's going to take it's going to take time. That's that's the long game. And that means a, a, a president of a university or a chancellor might have to spend, what, a third of their time? talking to the legislator, but they may never see the rewards of that. They might not get their name on a new building. They might not be the hero who raised $30 million for their campus and set themselves up for their next job. Mm. So I, we, we, we have not had a warm reception from any of the campus presidents um, and neither have our colleagues in other states. That's the short and, answer. And to make it just a tiny bit less short, um, what don't, we have had an occasional small victory. As we were going through all of these things, we discovered that the president's office, AKA the presidential palace, which was across the street from the university was costing $500,000 a year for a 20 year lease at a time when faculty and librarians were being laid off. You know, so there was space on campus and, you know, we pointed out, you know, how much is this in terms of instructional harm? Why do you need a palace when everybody else is being laid off? Mm -hmm. um, and eventually they backed off on that. That was embarrassing enough that we got that little morsel um, only over a multi-year process, but they are moving out of that. But another thing, two things that Joanna mentioned that I want to elaborate on, she mentioned Moody's, you know, <laughs> Getting a good credit rating is at you know the top of the priority list. And Moody's criteria include some very interesting things. The ability to raise tuition and fees quickly, i.e., 
the more you're part of a legislative process that requires approval, the lower your credit rating. The more the financial advisors, experts on your board, the higher your credit rating, the more the educators, the lower. Wow. What is called maximizing labor flexibility. Mm -hmm. In other words, the ability to manage unions and break tenure helps your credibility. Shared governance undermines your credibility. Mm -hmm. So the criteria for you know, evaluation of credit worthiness are explicitly anti-union among other things. Mm -hmm. An anti-educator. An anti-educator. My head's exploding a little bit on the board uh, point that you made. Keep going, Rich. And, and the other thing, as Joanna was saying, you know, they see their alternative as borrowing or private fundraising. And our president is constantly talking about how much effort goes into private fundraising and how incredibly successful they are. They just were received a $7 million you know, donation, the biggest in Salem State's history, you know, and virtually fireworks are going off. And that's not a bad thing, you know, particularly if it isn't demanding control, but $7 million, the biggest grant in history, mm -hmm. the rule of thumb is you put that in your reserves and can use 4% a year, which is $280,000 a year, which is not a lot. Mm -hmm. If the fair share amendment were to get passed, that would be 10 to $20 million a year, every year. Mm -hmm. No matter how many times we bring up this contrast of qualitative differentials, they won't go for it. We've been told we're opposed to tax increases. Mm -hmm. Our board membership is very, very, board leadership is very, shall we say, entrepreneurial mm -hmm. and right. very, very anti-tax increase. Um, pre the presidents are frequently afraid of their boards. Um, so you get this spiral effect where they're focusing on rate of return, re you know, return on investment rather than um, you know, educational outcomes. And it's even in their reports, you know, how is our rate return on investment? Right. You know? Yeah, and the last thing, I always lie when I say that, but um, also one of the things we learned that was hidden in those documents were covenants or um, intercept clauses. For the state universities in Massachusetts, there's an intercept clause, which says if even one of the state universities cannot pay off the debt, the debtors have the right to intercept the entire statewide appropriation before the colleges can use it for educational purposes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, so that, that's, that's like buried on page 47. Wow. But what we found out is if you use the word intercept and do search or covenant and do search, it's much easier to find. Mm -hmm. Go, I'm sorry, John. Yeah, so it's, it's a little bit complicated. If you think about how do the campuses back the loans, right? It's not like if the enterprise fails, you built a building, you can't pay the debt service on it, you're going into foreclosure. Great. The people that gave you the money can now take the property. That is not the case in a public campus. The land is owned by the state. 
and, and the building can't be destroyed by law. And so um, the way that the loans are backed are through projected revenue from the students. So that you'll read in the bond agreements what the expected sort of um, uh, revenue schedule is. You know, and it's often, if it's in the dorms, it's pegged to occupancy levels. So typically in a bond, there's an expectation that at 90% occupancy in a dorm, there's enough revenue generated through the student fees to break even, to pay the debt service. If it's above, hey, great, now the university's made a little money. If it's under, as was the case during COVID, oops, <laughs> now we need to take find revenue from uh, enrollment revenue. So uh, it's it kind of, it's called revenue bonds, but revenue really means student fees. Mm -hmm. But um, you don't get it, you can get a much better rate if in addition to projected revenue, which, you know, there could be a pandemic, um, what else is insuring the loan? And that's where some of the states and commonwealths have pledged their state appropriation for public education. Like, oh, oh. the state will pay. Wow. Right. If, if there is a crisis, but that's going to be cut off the top. And uh, so it puts us in a, 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 a pretty scary, mm -hmm. a, a pretty scary position that we experienced. And um, if it hadn't been for the pandemic, I don't think we would have understood capital debt. It really took mm. a pandemic to expose yeah. the frailty, yeah. how right. what happens when right. student revenue is not enough. Right. And, and similarly, am I cutting you off, Laura? No, no, no. Go, go for it. Heading on three little things. When Joanna talks about, you know, this becomes fees for students, what we've increasingly been framing this as is that there's opposition to tax cuts for the wealthy. I mean, yeah, but there are increases in taxes for the students. We just call them fees. Yeah. And does it change their nature because you spell them differently? Mm -hmm. When we looked at, again, we didn't have to calculate that they have it in a color pie chart that 53% of the dorm fees go directly for capital debt and another 8% go into the reserves in case there's a problem. So 60% of what students are paying for dorms is directly linked to capital debt. And then just recently, I've been reading because Joanna was talking about, you know, there was a COVID crisis and problem. I've just been reading about one of the new rages, which is public-private partnerships, which are a new iteration of this. But what they were talking about is having learned from COVID, we are now figuring out ways to guarantee that any deals we do with universities have protections against pandemics, mm -hmm. et cetera. So we're gonna be raising rates and yeah, et cetera. It was somewhat totally expected, but also chilling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, these private partnerships, um, really interesting. What we 
found on uh, many public campuses uh, in Massachusetts and other states is that they have really hit the ceiling on how much they can borrow. Because rule of thumb, no more than about 5% of your budget should be going towards debt service. Um, our campus is at 10%. Hmm. And the legislature, I mean, you know, there's pol debt policies that say you can't go above. And uh, UMass Amherst is at that level. And so then how do you build your next project when you can't borrow now? The state's not funding it. You can't borrow. You certainly can't fundraise for, for you know, quick enough. Uh, so what they do is, is um, campuses are starting to lease the land and have a private company for profit come in, build something that can generate money, a dining hall, wow. a residence hall, and they get to keep the profit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, public campuses now just kind of like, hey, we need, we need these services, make as much money on it as you want. And the board of trustees or the chancellors of the, you know, the um, uh, regents at those colleges aren't even involved in the decision-making any longer about the fees. Mm -hmm. it's, um, it's, it's pretty scary. You know, and how creative of our boards of trustees to find yet another way to borrow even more. You know? Capitalism <laughs> is very creative in its so dystopian way. Well, yeah, so uh, this is a very, very uh, dystopian situation you're describing. Yes. I, yes. <laughs> more than I, I'm, my, yeah, my, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm reeling a little thinking about all of this. Um, so, you, you know, you all have, have definitely talked about what you see as the alternative to this situation in terms of, you know, state funding for higher education. I, I just, I, I would like to, to hear a little bit about just, you know, if you're sort of dreaming big about where you imagine your campaign could go, and especially if it could, could, you know, expand beyond your campus and get bigger, what would, what would it look like to win? And, and how do you think that higher ed could be transformed if we didn't have to um, be shaping educational priorities around servicing debt? Well, there's one interesting short-term example, which is during COVID, uh, the federal government forgave all capital debt that it had loaned to the historically black colleges and universities. So all of a sudden, not all their local debt, but all the federal debt. And all of a sudden, these campuses had a, either a surplus or less of a deficit. And I forgot which college it was that reported back um, that the amount of the debt cancellation was exact, well, not exactly, but virtually the same as the amount of the proposed cuts that were going to happen. By eliminating even that small amount of debt, it qualitatively transformed the educational nature of that university. So that's, you know, one model. Um, another sort of perspective we get also from the debt collective. You know, Biden just, as you said, you know, canceled or whatever his word was, a small portion of the debt. 
12 years ago when Debt Collective brought that up, it was, oh, you're utopian idiots, you know, what are you talking about? You know, now not only is it mainstream discussion, but it's partially implemented. We're in year one and a half, right? So we understand that this is a long-term campaign. Um, it's got to transform not just public higher education, but the whole notion of recreating the notion of public goods. The same thing is happening with public transportation. You know, subways are being gutted, Amtrak is being gutted, the post office is being gutted, the weather service is being gutted. Um, you know, those both provide links for people who aren't in higher ed that, oh my God, the same thing is happening and that's really screwing me over. I didn't know that's the same thing that's happening in school. And another macro tendency um, was pointed out by a guy named Wolfgang Streeck um, called in a book called Buying Time about the transition from a tax state in which public goods were funded by taxes spread across the population to different degrees, progressive or not, and the transformation of that into a debt state. And a debt state is a form of extraction of wealth from the poor to the top and it de-democratizes and de-publicizes public goods. So what we would be looking for in the short term, things like the millionaire's tax, things like small cancellations, things like, you know, in Massachusetts, they just approved, I forgot how much it is in additional capital construction for universities, more than has happened recently, but not significant amounts. Incremental stuff we we take, but it is a long-term struggle just to transform the paradigm within which all of this exists. And we're fighting pretty big forces. Thank you so much for your time and also yeah. for the amazing organizing work and doing yes. it in the horizontal, you know, relationship building kind of way. So that was amazing. I guess just one last thing. Where can where can listeners who want to know more? Where can they find your campaign? Sure. So we do have a website. It is www.theothercollegedebtcrisis.org, and uh, there we have access to our publications, but more importantly, to our debt audit toolkit, in case listeners want to maybe reveal debt in on their campus. Our theme music is by Nigel Weiss. Our artwork is by Arthur Kay. You can find more of their artwork at rotradio.tumblr.com. We would love it if you subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. Rate and review us on all the major platforms. Thanks for listening. Bye.